Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. We're going to read through verse 22. If you want to stand, you can. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Uh, again, kind of a hard saying of Jesus. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Father, we ask you to open our eyes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, Father, we, we want to be good disciples. We want to be disciples who obey all that you've commanded. We want to be disciples who make more disciples. And so, Father, teach us about what that looks like, what that means. I pray that you would convict and lay bare our hearts where we are holding back parts of our life, where we are putting conditions upon you. Jesus, help us to fully trust you, to fully be all in this morning. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I have, I've never been a salesman. That's a, a job I've never had. So I, I, I can't say that I, I know about sales um, from a firsthand standpoint. Uh, however, just looking at kind of what I know about purchasing and buying, I think there are some people who are good salesmen and some people who are bad salesmen. We ran into a bad one the other day. We actually were leaning toward a, a particular product, a particular commitment that we were going to make. And uh, we got somebody who was representing the company. And basically, by the end of the conversation, we decided to go a different direction, you know. Uh, and, and, it was, and it was because they, they didn't emphasize any of the good things, you know. Like, like they weren't building up the company. They weren't, this is a great company you you love this you know this 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 no no they actually weren't they were kind of saying well you know what you could probably do better going this way or you you know this is going to really be hard and you can you know this you know and, and and they really convinced us not to commit to the product now that's what i would consider to be a bad salesman I'm, I'm assuming that a good salesman is one who really builds up and emphasizes the benefits of the product or the commitment and a bad salesman is one who, who doesn't build that up but rather talks a lot about the cost, you know, talks a lot about, you know, the what, what you're going to have to pay. Can you imagine going to a car lot and you're looking at a car you're really excited about and he's like, yeah, but you're going to have to pay this much, you know, and do you realize the interest is going to be on that thing and do you realize how many days you're going to be paying that off? Do you realize how hard it's going to be, you know, some months around Christmas time to make that payment, you know, uh, that that would be a salesman probably that wouldn't have very much success at sales. Well, when I look at this passage, okay, when I look at it, I almost want to say Jesus is a terrible salesman, okay? Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, first of all, Jesus is not selling anything, okay? So, so the, whole, the whole analogy kind of breaks down, and, and, and it could be that Jesus just always tells the exact truth, you know? Uh, even more so, what I think in this case is that Jesus knows people, okay? Jesus knows people. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I want you to see what I mean by this. So in verse 16 and 17, it says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Okay? That's a good night, right? It, it was a night where a bunch of people came, some of them oppressed by demons, some of them under kind of bondage in, in their own mental and emotional and physical life. Jesus heals them all with a word. Okay? And then a whole bunch of sick people come, and it says he heals all of them. 
Now, what a great night, right? Now, you can imagine what would be the result of that, right? Lots more would come. And that's exactly what happened. Lots more come. So in verse 18, it says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, right? So lots of people gather to Jesus immediately. A crowd gathers. And so what does Jesus do? He leaves. (laughs) He goes to the other side of the lake. He packs up and gets ready to go. Now, this is actually not strange in the New Testament, okay? Now, you would think anytime a great crowd would, would, would gather, what would you do? You would stay, right? Jesus doesn't do that in his ministry. A couple reasons why. First of all, Jesus is on a laser-pointed mission, okay, that he does not deviate from. Jesus knows that he didn't come to be the miracle worker. That, that's really not why he came. We love the miracles of Jesus because they show us his power. They show us his might. They show us what? They show us a glimpse of the kingdom of God that's coming, right? They, they show us what God can do in people's lives. We love them. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to have a miracle circus in which you would, you know, set up a big, big tent and people would just come in. And on. He, he did not come for that reason. He came to live the perfect righteous life that you and I have not lived. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He came to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins and to resurrect from the dead, offering the gospel to the world. That's why Jesus came. And he's always on that mission. He's always on that mission. And, and so even though a great crowd gathers, Jesus, Jesus is saying, let's go. We, we got to stay on the mission. We got to stay on the track that God has, has called us to be on. So a great crowd comes. And as you can imagine, as Jesus is packing up to get in the boats, to go on the other side, there's a bunch of people that say what? I want to go too, right? I want to follow. Just how many, we don't know. Matthew gives us two examples here of two men who came up to Jesus saying, I want to follow you. I'll follow you wherever you go. I, I want to be a follower of you. So he gives us two. Luke, in the same text in Luke 9, gives us three. Okay, And, and the reason, I, I don't know why Luke gives three and Matthew gives two. Remember we talked last week that the Gospels tell the stories. They, they emphasize different points. you know. But, but I would probably say there were probably more like a hundred, wouldn't you? I mean, if Jesus is talking to crowds in the thousands and he says, all right, I'm ready to go, wouldn't you imagine there would be a whole bunch of people that would let me like, hey, I just heard what you said and I want to be in too. Okay, so Matthew is describing the conversation of a couple of those people. Now, instead of sealing the deal, that, that's, if I was a salesman, that's what I would call it. So he, he's got these two guys that come up to him and say, hey, we want to follow you. So instead of Jesus being like, that is great, you know, here's the plan. You know, we're going to be on here. We're going to be doing all kinds of miracles. You're going to see all kinds of incredible things. You know, being a disciple of Jesus brings forgiveness of sins and adoption in the family of God and, and justification before God and a home in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God. You know, instead of building up all the benefits, you know what Jesus says? Jesus talks about the cost. He talks about the cost. Now, again, why, why does he do that? I, my theory is, is that Jesus is, and this is not a theory, by the way, the first part of this, is that he's the perfect man. He's the perfect man, and as the perfect man, he is perfectly led by the Holy Spirit. I, what I see the Spirit doing in people's lives in the, in the Gospels is whenever someone comes up to want to follow Jesus, what I see the Spirit doing is putting his finger on the obstacle to them following Jesus. Let me give you a great example in the Bible. You remember the rich young ruler? That, is, that story is told in all the Gospels, right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. First of all, this guy is wealthy. This guy's good looking. He's young. He's hip. He's a ruler. He's got power. He's got good connections. He's got a good family. He is the kind of guy that you would want to have in your group, right? He comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And you remember what Jesus does? He tells the guy something that he he doesn't tell hardly anybody else in all the gospels. He says to him, go sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. 
Now, why does Jesus say that to him when he doesn't say that to so many other people? You know why? Again, Jesus is perfectly led by the Spirit. He knows that there's one obstacle in the way of this guy being a follower of Jesus. And then what's that? He loves his wealth. He knows that his wealth is actually going to trip him up from being a follower of Jesus. I think Jesus is doing the same thing in this passage here. We've got a couple of examples of people who say, I want to follow Jesus, but they're not really all in. They're, they're, not, they're not really sold out. They don't really trust Jesus completely. And Jesus knows that. The Spirit leads him to know that. And so he puts his finger on the thing that keeps them from being a disciple. Okay? Which is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about discipleship. We're going to talk about the cost of discipleship. Before we get there, though, I really want to make sure. This is something we do at Lincoln. If you're new to Lincoln, we do this all the time at Lincoln. I want to make sure you are perfectly clear that, about the gospel and about following Jesus, okay? Now, now let, me, let me describe those. Really, those in some, in some ways, you think about them, they're the same. In some ways, they're different. Here, here's, here's what I don't want you to be misunderstood about, okay? Salvation is a gift of God accomplished completely by the work of Jesus on the cross, okay? Do, do you understand that? In other words, what Jesus is telling these guys when he, when, he, when he gives them things to do that they need to do or things they need to think about, he's not saying, here's the one work you need to accomplish in order to be saved. He's not saying that. It, because salvation is a gift of God completely by the work of Jesus. You and I are broken sinners. There is no one thing we need to do. There is no 10 things that we need to do. There is no 100 good works that we need to do to get into heaven. It doesn't work that way. We are broken. We cannot save ourselves, which is why God sent Jesus to be the perfect Savior, to be our rescuer, to live the perfect life, to, to suffer a cruel death on the cross as payment for our sins, taking the wrath of God away from us and onto himself in order that we can be joined to Jesus by faith and repentance. That's the gospel, right? We understand that is the gospel. Now, when we're following Jesus, though, so what it means to follow him with our life, what it means to be a disciple, that's what we're talking about in, 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 the, in this text to come. Billy Graham said it this way. I think you might like this. He said, salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything that we have. All right? So that's sort of, that's a pretty good way, I think, to describe what Jesus is, is describing to these men in, in them being disciples, them being followers of Jesus. So Jesus loads up and he says, all right, we're going to the other side of the lake. He's got a couple guys that come to him and say, hey, we're coming too. We want to follow you. And, and, and Jesus addresses each one of them with a, with a different kind of cost of discipleship, okay? So the first thing that he tells this man, this first one man that comes to him in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse nine, verse 10, uh, 19, this guy, actually this guy says, he says a really good thing. He says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. All right, that, that's, that's a good response to Jesus, isn't it? I'll follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go, I'm gonna go, all right? But actually what Jesus responds to him is, it exposes something about his heart, okay? What Jesus tells him is foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, all right? Now, essentially what Jesus is saying is, okay, you're going to follow me? All right, do you realize we've got no accommodations for tonight? We, we've got nowhere to stay. There, there's uncertainty. There's, there's complete uncertainty in what your life will be like if you follow me, okay? In other words, if you follow me, there's no guarantees of comfort. There's no guarantees of luxury. Okay? I actually like to use this verse for my own family, uh, for my neglect of vacation planning, which happens quite a bit. Uh, when, whenever we find ourselves in Rollins, uh, 
Wyoming at 2.45 in the morning and we've got, there's no rooms in the whole place and there's no campgrounds and we end up spending the night in a, a weight room in a motel. I tell my kid, foxes have holes, birds of the airs have nests, but the Dirks family has nowhere to lay their head, right? And it's a biblical thing, okay? I don't know if that's a misuse of the scriptures or not, but it's certainly true of what Jesus was saying that, listen, you're not guaranteed comfort in your following Jesus, Okay? Now remember again, Jesus is perfectly in tune to the Spirit. He's discerning the work of, the, of God in these guys' lives. And what we have to assume here is this guy liked his comfort. Okay, You, you may be kind of like that. You, you may kind of like your comfort. Which one? I bet, I, bet there's, I bet there's quite a few people in here that would say, I have a pretty clear comfort zone around me, right? I, I have this, this comfort zone, and, and, and I'll make it pretty clear to you that I'm comfortable doing these things, not that though, right? Now, we have to be really careful of that kind of discipleship, okay? The kind of discipleship that says, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as we stay at the Holiday Inn Express, you know? Jesus, I'll follow you as long as we got three to four-star accommodations. I don't go lower than three. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as it does not include spit-up or diapers. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as I don't have to sweat. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't make me go to a small group. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't want me to share my faith with anybody because I'm really shy and I don't like talking. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't make me get up in front of anybody. Listen, we don't get to put restrictions on our discipleship, okay? We, we don't get to do that. We, we, we don't get to tell Jesus, I'll only go so far, but I'm uncomfortable here, so I'm not going to do that. Well, then you're not going to follow him. Now, one of the things that's significant about this is that Jesus, he lived this way himself, did he not? There's this great passage in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. In fact, man, I, I didn't have time to talk about this in the other services, but I can go as long as I want in this one. So it, here's, a, here's a cool little aside, okay? And we, we, won't, we won't chase this rabbit very long, just, just a bit, okay? But, but when Jesus responds to this guy, he says, uh, Jesus said, "In foxes have holes, and the birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're a Jewish person, when he says son of man, if you know your Bible, you know what triggers in your mind? Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It's an incredible passage where, where the heavens are opened up and Daniel sees this vision and God, God, God is, is on his throne and it says one like a son of man approached and, and God gives him the keys to the kingdom of, uh, of all the universe, right? It's this, this royal figure, this, all it says is the son of man, this one like a son of man approached, and God gives him to the king. I think Jesus is picturing, triggering their mind to think about that. What, what he's saying is, is that Jesus is the ruler and reigner. He's the king of the universe, and yet he was born in a stable. He lived in poverty and obscurity, and he died owning nothing but the clothes on his back. You know what I think that keeps us from doing? I think that keeps us from having this I deserve mindset, right? Like I deserve this kind of comfort. I deserve not to be messed with with my schedule and my time. No, actually you don't. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves. You need to think this way. That's what that says. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, here's talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You hear that? Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus has all the privileges of divinity. The universe is his. But you know what he does not do? He does not have a death grip on that. 
He actually lets all of that go. And he humbles himself. Listen to the rest of the verse. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A lot of us will hold on to our comforts, won't we? And we got a death grip on, here's what I will do, here's what I won't do. Here's what I'll take, here's what I won't. By golly, I, 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 I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I don't deserve this kind of... Well, hold on. Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Because Jesus let go of the privileges of his divinity. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, let go of his comforts. Now, is Jesus against houses? Is he against air conditioning or personal property or beds or dishwashers? No, not at all. You, you read your New Testament, you see um, people using their houses, their property, their things, their possessions for the glory of God. Not, he's absolutely not against. What he's against is fair weather followers. What he's against is those people who limit their discipleship to what they're comfortable with. What happens when Jesus leads you into an uncomfortable situation? That's a great question for all of us this morning. What happens when Jesus leads us into an uncomfortable situation? Now, I'm not talking about what happens when you feel called to a different ministry or, you know, some people feel called to this and not that. Well, that's the beauty of the diversity of the church. But I'm saying whenever God leads a situation, a ministry, a situation into your life that you know he's calling you to respond to, what do you do? When that's uncomfortable. What, what do you do when God calls you to a cross-cultural friendship? What do you do when he calls you to minister to the needy or the homeless or the smelly or, or, or the messed up or the broken people? What, what do you do when God leads you to sacrificial giving? What, what do you do when a need is placed in front of you and you've been saving this money for something you're going to buy for your comfort, for, for, for your own enjoyment, and, and God leads you? What do you do in those situations? What, what do you do when, when, when God leads you to an opportunity to share the gospel that you know is going to be risky? It might risk your job. It might risk your reputation. What do you do when God leads you to to minister to a messy person? When you know that that this person is damaged and and they're broken and they're abused and it's going to be hard. What do you do when God leads you to those things? Do you trust Him? Last week we saw that discipleship is all based on faith, isn't it? It's all based on Jesus is everything He says He is and He'll do everything He says He'll do. And so a disciple trusts that whatever God leads us into, we, we just need to trust and obey. But, but I worry when I hear people saying, well, I'm not called to that. Okay, now, if, if truly you're not called, for, you know, for instance, if there's a ministry and, and you can truly say, I'm not called to, to that. I'm called actually to spend all the time that I would be doing that on this. I mean, God, God is calling me to this ministry. That's awesome. Isn't it awesome that God makes the church so diverse that all these needs can be met? But you know what some people have done? They've hijacked a phrase, okay? They, 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 just, they just grabbed it, and they're using it for something else. There, there's a lot of Christians who use the phrase, I'm not called to that. They use that to basically mean, I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to. That's not a disciple. That's not a disciple, Okay? Here's here's the thing we understand about a disciple. Disciples are called to uncertain circumstances by a certain Savior, okay? And when I say certain, I mean sure, okay? So, So we are called to circumstances that are uncertain, 
All right? I was reading Acts 14 with some guys on Tuesday morning. And in verse 22, it says this. Uh, Barnabas and Paul, they go back to strengthen the disciples. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay, do you see what they, got, what they laid out to these new believers? They laid out that, listen, we're going to go through lots of hard things to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's true, isn't it? Like, we're not, we're not guaranteed an easy life. We're not guaranteed a comfortable life. But we are guaranteed a sure and certain Savior. There's lots of guarantees in the Bible, but they're not about your comfort or your circumstances. You know what they are about? They're about that God will never leave you or forsake you. They're about Romans 8, 28, that God's working all things together, even the hard, brutal, terrible things in your life. He's working all those things together for his good and for, your, for his glory and for your good. What is certain in the Bible is that 2 Corinthians 4 and, and Romans chapter 8 tell us that the glory to come far outweighs. It's not even comparable to the difficult things that we must endure, okay? So what we're promised as a disciple is that our circumstances will be uncertain, but our Savior will not. Our Savior will do everything he said he'll do. And here's what, here's what a believer says. A believer says Jesus is better. He's better. What, whatever hard thing that he leads me into, he is better. Whatever I lose in comfort for the gospel, Jesus makes up for again and again. A disciple believes that he's better. All right, number two. So verse 21, another guy comes, okay? This guy comes, and it says, Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. All right, so this guy says, Hey, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you, but first I need to go take care of some things, and then I'll come and follow you, all right? Now, it's disputable exactly what he's talking about when he says, let me go bury my father. Let me give you the three choices, okay? Now, what we know about this culture is, you know, a lot of times in, in America, you might, someone might die. You might have the funeral a week later because we have this embalming process. We have funeral homes. Okay, they didn't have those things. When someone died, you, you had a funeral and buried them immediately, okay? So choice number one is, is that all these crowds of people gather to hear Jesus preach. As Jesus is preaching, at the end of the sermon, during the invitation time, dad goes and dies, right? And the guy looks at his dead father on the ground there. Jesus is getting ready to load up and go in the boat. He's like, hey, you watch my dad here. He runs over to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you, but dad just died, so let me go bury him, and then I'll follow you. Okay, that's choice number one. I do not think that's what happened, all right? You can think that if you want. It certainly is an option. It would be incredibly strange for that to be the case, okay? Choice number two, his dad is old or sick, and he expects him to die in some time in the near future. And so what he's telling Jesus is, hey, I want to follow you, but first I need to go home and wait till dad passes, which ought to be pretty quick, and then I'll come and follow you, okay? Third choice is, dad may not even be sick, but bury my father was a phrase, which actually it's still used in some parts of the world today, that meant, you know, Someday my dad will pass on, all of, of my inheritance will come to me, you know, the family estate will be wrapped up, and, 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 and then I'll be free to do whatever. I think it's that one. I think it's that one not, not only because that, that makes most sense in the context, but here's, here's, here's what really clinches the deal for me. When I was in North Africa and when I was in uh, India, I had at different times people say, I want to follow Jesus, but my mom and dad don't agree with it. And so I'm going to wait until they pass away. After they pass away, 
then I'm going to become a Christian. I've known people that said that. And, and can you see why? Like, especially a culture where, where everything kind of revolves around the family, even the business. So this guy's probably thinking, you know what, I want to follow you, Jesus, but dad won't agree. So I'm going to wait till dad passes away and the business comes to me and I get my inheritance, then I'll be a follower. Okay? Now, there's something incredibly wrong with putting Jesus off until you get everything straightened out and then you'll follow. That's called conditional discipleship, all right? So, so the point we see here is that nothing can take priority over Jesus for a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? That means he's first. That, that means nothing takes priority over him. Now, now, again, let me just balance this out and make sure you, you don't misunderstand this passage. Is Jesus saying he does not want us to take care of family? Absolutely not. What's the fifth commandment say? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. What's 1 Timothy 5.8? This is an incredibly powerful verse. It says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so it's clear Jesus is not contradicting the rest of the Bible. He absolutely wants us to take care of, of our families. But what he's saying here is you can't put terms and conditions on your discipleship. You, you can't say, God, I'll be a disciple. Here's my agenda here's my schedule God you got to work around that that's not what it means to be a disciple one of the worst witnessing encounters I've ever had in my life happened quite a while ago because my office was still over in this corner over there which has been a long time ago so it's probably been 15 years maybe 17 years somewhere in that neighborhood but I had a guy come in and he came into my office one of the first things he said was I'm ready to become a Christian now Every young pastor, that's an exciting thing, isn't it? When someone comes in your office and says, I'm ready to become a Christian. So I lead him through the gospel. We talk about what it means to follow Jesus. We talk about what it means to, to put your faith. I lead him through the Roman road, I believe is what it does. At that point, he says, I want to pray. I want to be, become a Christian right now. He, he, he prays the prayer to become a Christian. And, and then at that point, one of the most terrible experiences witnessing happened. And that is... He gets done praying to receive Christ, and then immediately he turns to me and he tells me all the things he's not going to be involved in in the church, okay? Now, I can't see anybody's heart, but I would say from reading my New Testament, that man is not a follower of Jesus. He, he's not a disciple, probably not a Christian at all. I, I don't think he is. And again, I can't see anybody's heart, Maybe maybe he turned around. I really haven't even seen him since, uh, which is kind of what he told me was going to happen. <laughs> so he kept his word. Uh, but but see, you, you don't come to Jesus with your own agenda. You, you, you don't come to Jesus saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first I'm going to do all this stuff. Charles Spurgeon, I wish I'd have brought the quote. It's in my other Bible, but he has this great quote, and I'll summarize it for you. Jesus is either everything or he's nothing, okay? In your heart, he's either everything or he's nothing, but he can't be something in between. Like, it's really kind of impossible for Jesus to be something in between that, okay? He's either Lord of all the earth. He's either the creator and sustainer of everything. He's either what the Bible says he is, which is the bread of life and the fountain of living waters and the resurrection and the life and the good shepherd and the vine. He's either all of that and you're completely dependent upon him for everything, or he's nothing to you. He's one of those things. I think the word first is an interesting word in this text. So look at verse 21. It says, Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go 
bury my father. You see, it really wouldn't, it really wouldn't make a difference what, what it said after the word go, okay? But he says, Lord, let me first, it actually doesn't matter what it says. This guy had to go take care of some sort of business with his dad. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't know if his dad just died or if he was going to die or if he just you know, had control of the business and, and the family and he's just waiting until dad passed on. We don't know what it was. But, but the key is the guy responds to Jesus' invitation of discipleship by saying, Lord, that's good, but I got something else I got to do first. That's not being the disciple. Man, I just wonder if you're here this morning and, and your heart is being moved. Man, I, I, in, in the three services that we have, I, I can see people that I can tell God is moving in them. But so often, you know what the hindrance is? Well, it's, it's something else is first. It's like, I, man, I hear what you're saying. I hear what the gospel says. I, I, I admire Jesus. I'm fascinated by, by the story of the gospel. But first... It doesn't matter what's, what, what comes out of your mouth after that. Because here's the thing. He must be first. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. All that you're worrying about, whatever, whatever you'd fill that blank in with, whatever it is you're worrying about, Jesus is the creator, sustainer. He, he holds together all that is by the word of his power. That's what Hebrews 1 tells us. Colossians 1 as well. Whatever you're worrying about, it doesn't exist without Jesus. Whatever you're fretting over, whatever you're tore up over, whatever you think you've got to handle, whatever you think you've got to hope for or work for or dream for, whatever it is you think you've got to frantically maintain, Jesus is the biggest factor in all that. It's interesting that he mentions family here. Uh, the reason I, I, I held back in making a whole sermon out of that is because there's, a, there's a, a, an even harder passage coming up in Matthew 10 about family. But, but so many people, honestly, family is their functional God. It's their functional God. It's the thing that they worship. It's the thing that they care most about. It's the thing that they live for. It's their legacy. It's It's everything. You know, and, and it's easy almost to look through the scriptures and say, well, man, look at the way the Bible talks about family. I mean, it's absolutely, I'm to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and I'm to bring up my children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. There's all kinds of things in the Bible about family. But listen, if family is your God, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. See, you can't be, well, my life functions this way, family first, Jesus second. I can't be that. You want to know the very best thing that I can do for my kids? It is not, it is not give them a great education. It, it, it is not make sure they marry a good believer. It, it, it is not make sure they're on the right teams. It is not make sure they have the right clothes and the right, the right gear and, and everything. It's not make sure they have friends. It, it is not those things. I'm not saying those aren't important. I deeply care about the who they marry deal. I pray about that every day. But the most important thing that I give my kids is me following Jesus above all. That's it. Like that, that's, that impacts my children miles ahead of all that other stuff. 
The most important thing is Jesus. You know the most important thing in my marriage? It, it actually is not doing the dishes, though I am an expert at that. If there's anything I'm good at, it's that. It is not dating my wife. It's not that. It's not making sure we have a getaway every once in a while. It is not good communication. Those, all those things are incredibly important. But the thing in my marriage is if I'm running hard after Jesus and he is first in my life and I'm obeying all that he commands and Emma is running hard after Jesus and he is first in her life and she's obeying all that he commands, we're going to be just fine. No matter what horrible, terrible thing hits our lives, hits our marriage, we're going to be okay if we're both pursuing Jesus. So, so do you see where the first, Lord, first let me take care of this and then I'll get around to you? Do you see where that's completely broken? That, that, that doesn't work. To be a disciple, we must follow Jesus. Look, look at what Jesus said to this guy. He says two things. He says, he says let, in verse, this is uh, verse uh, 21. Uh, he says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Verse 22, Jesus says to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, what, what is he talking about there? Well, if you believe that Jesus is being literal there, um, I think that, that's, a, that's, a hard, that's a hard sell for me because Jesus is a smart guy and he knows that dead people don't operate shovels, right? And, and so I think it's silly to think that Jesus is speaking physically literal there. So what other way in the Bible does, does the Bible use the word dead? Well, actually, it is prominently used for spiritual death, right? Spiritual lostness. Ephesians 2.1, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which, we want, in, in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, right? I think he's saying, listen, get your mind off all these worldly things. There's plenty of lost people to take care of those things. There's plenty of lost people that are focused on that. You get your mind on the things of the kingdom. Now, I, I think I can prove that that's, that that's the right interpretation by going to Luke, okay? Luke chapter 9 is the exact same passage, except Luke adds a few things and he adds another person, okay? Another, another would-be follower. So the thing that he adds in this section is in Luke 9, verse 50. It says, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, so I assume this guy is worried about his business, his relationship with his dad, you know, his inheritance, uh, the family farm. Maybe they've got a vineyard. Maybe there's some land at stake. And he's thinking, I don't want to do anything to jeopardize my future. And Jesus is like, look, leave that to people that don't know about the kingdom. You, you go proclaim the kingdom. You know who I am. If, if, if you're a real follower of me, then set your mind on things above. That's the way Paul described it. Now, one more thing. So in Luke 9, I hope you're still there. Don't, don't leave there because I want to jump in. Luke, Luke 9 gives another example of somebody who came to Jesus wanting to be a follower but wasn't completely committed. In Luke 9, 61, it says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Okay, it's kind of a similar thing. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and is fit for the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, I think it's pretty clear that in this one, especially because of Jesus' response about the plow, I I think what Jesus is saying is a couple things here. Number one, as we put these together, he's saying there's an urgency about the kingdom of God. So uh, all these guys, or both both these last two anyway, they're they're all saying, well, I hear the gospel, I hear what you're calling me to, but first I'm going to go do something else. I just want to remind you, church, there is an urgency to responding to God. I think it is very dangerous to get in the habit of feeling the prompting of the Spirit of God towards something and putting him off. You know how we shush our kids? You ever do that? You know, your kids are, man, I was trying to order at Sonic the other day and Colt would not stop talking, you know? And and actually, like we, we had several rounds of it, like I'd be like, son, shh. I'm trying to order, you know? And then he'd be quiet for just long enough until the person would ask me again or I'd start talking, and then he would start talking again, you know? And we ended up, instead of having a large lemon water, we got one of those minis, you know? And, and it wasn't their fault. It was, I know they couldn't hear, you know? And I'm like, shh, shh. Don't do that to God. Man, when you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit, do not shush him because you have something more pressing to take care of. You don't. Listen and obey. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow but looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I grew up, on a, I grew up plowing fields. That's, that was pretty much my hobby forced upon me by my parents and grandparents. And one of the things that would often happen, especially in my, my younger years, is I would get distracted with something behind I was either dragging something or I thought I was going to plug up or something and I would look back too long and while I was looking back I I began to veer I would begin to swerve right and then I would get back on track and I I remember I can't tell you how many times I, I just I would say it'll be okay it'll be fine you know no one will ever know Week later, after a rain, I can't tell you how many times this happened. I'd be in the, in the pickup with my dad, my grandpa. We'd be buzzing down a country road. We'd be passing one of our fields. My dad would hit the brakes. I, I knew exactly what was going to happen. You know, hit the ground. And he'd look out there and he'd say, what's that, Jason? You know? And out there, there'd be this little green patch of Christmas trees coming up, you know? I mean, and my dad called them skippers, right? And what was the problem there? I was not looking ahead when you become a disciple the old life is gone the new has come your eyes have to be on that which is ahead pastor daniel came in my office this morning with his his kids and they they prayed for me which is really cool and and i was thinking about this passage and we were talking about this and man there's so many examples of the bible of people who look back lot's wife you know They're being delivered from the wrath of God and they've got one command, don't look back. But this lady had attachments in the world. And even as she's being delivered by the wrath of God, she can't help but be looking back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. I thought of Demas, remember that guy? Colossians, we see him serving with Paul. He's one of the guys mentioned in the Bible. And by 2 Timothy, Paul says, Demas having loved this present world, has abandoned us. Lots of illustrations of people who who look back. But the thing that Daniel brought up, which I thought was really interesting, is remember the story of Elisha. Okay, so there's two, there's Elijah, J, and there's Elisha, right? S-H, 
okay? Elijah was first, right? Great prophet, all kinds of miracles. He comes up, Elisha is out plowing in the field, right? Elijah comes up, throws his mantle over him, and just keeps on trucking. Elijah always did stuff like that, you know? And Elisha's like, wait, 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 wait. He knows what that means. He knows that God is calling him into this mission. And so he says, hey, let, let me go back and say goodbye to my parents, tell them what's happening, and then I'll be right with you. And if you remember, Elijah just kind of keeps on trucking. He's like, whatever you need to do, you know, whatever. You know, he's like, what's that have to do with me? Basically, he's like, I did my job. I told you God's calling you. Now you better respond. And if you remember what happens next, it's, it's really interesting. He cuts up. I think he had five yoke of oxen, if I remember right. I, that, that's a big tractor, but I, I could be wrong. I need to go back and read. But I think it was more than one. But he cuts up the plow, and, and he makes a fire, and he slaughters the oxen and puts them. I think he offers them to the Lord. If I, remember, I, I need to go back and read that story, but I think it's 1 Kings 19. What a great picture of not looking back, right? When, when, you, when you burn up your tractors... There's no going back, is there? I think that's what Jesus wants from us. If you're a disciple, he wants you to be all in. He, he wants you to be willing to obey no matter what it costs. My friends, if you have a comfort zone, you, you need to erase that. You need to step outside of that. You need to have the heart that says, Jesus, I trust you. Whatever you call me to do, I will do. Whatever you call me to do in small groups, Jesus, I'm in. Whatever you call me to do in team kids, I'm in. Whatever you call me to do in ministry, whatever you call me to do in my marriage, whatever you call me to do in relationships, whatever you call me to do in forgiving, whatever you call me to do in obeying, you're not going to hear from me, well, that's hard and I'm uncomfortable. You're not going to hear from me, well, first, let me... No, a disciple is one who follows Jesus. Be that disciple. Be that follower this morning. Let's pray. Father, I, I just ask that you would do exactly what you did with these particular men. That you do that with us. Father, you know our hearts. God, you know each individual in this room. Father, you know the, the different things that would trip us up in our following. Father, you know that some of us have fears. Some of us have a pretty small comfort zone. Father, some of us uh, have things that are, are, are in priority over obeying and following you. And God, I pray that you'd fix that this morning. God, fix that in our hearts. God, make us responsive and obedient to you this morning. That we might truly be disciples of yours. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.